Good evening, hello and welcome to Cryptique, your home for the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, and so much more. Ryan and I work hard to put out all this free content. All we ask is that you subscribe and share with a friend. It's as easy as clicking the share button on your favorite podcast host. Check out Movie Howl for reviews on movies, past, present, and future. You're going you're gonna to review some future movies? Uh, we will review future movies, but we do that in the future, too. So, present <laughs> movies for you guys. Fair enough. All right. Tell us what you want us to cover at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. I'm joined, as always, by a man whose favorite late-night snack is a twerky sandwich. Ryan. What's up? Uh, you know me so well. We've been doing this a long time now. <laughs> well, I just thought twerky sandwich was a fun word. So, oh, God, that is good. I was so, I'm always so excited to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may be the best one for a while. So, <laughs> just prepare for disappointment. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we are talking about the Bell Witch. Tell us about her. The Bell Witch or Bell Witch Haunting is a legend from Southern United States folklore centered on the 19th century Bell family of Northwest Robertson County, Tennessee. Farmer John Bell Sr. resided with his family along the Red River in an area currently near the town of Adams. According to legend, from 1817 to 1821, his family in the local area came under attack by a mostly invisible entity that was able to speak, affect the physical environment, and shapeshift. Some accounts record the spirit also to have been... <clears throat> oh my god. <laughs> oh, she's got you by the throat. Some accounts record the spirit also to have been clairvoyant and capable of crossing long distances with superhuman speed and or of being in more than one place at a time. In the early 1800s, John Bell and his family were reportedly haunted by a malevolent spirit dubbed the Bell Witch, an ordeal that ultimately ended in murder. For centuries, the legend of an evil entity called the Bell Witch made waves in rural Robertson County, Tennessee. The spirit allegedly appeared in the early 1800s to haunt farmer John Bell and his family, but she remains a part of American folklore to this day. Though the Bell Witch started as a relatively harmless entity knocking on walls and pulling blankets from beds, she quickly turned violent. Soon, John's daughter Betsy had scratches and welts all over her body, and after three years of escalating hauntings, the ghost supposedly murdered John himself. Several theories have emerged over the years in an attempt to explain the Bell Witch hauntings. Have you ever seen uh, the Bell Witch movie with Donald Sutherland? I can't remember what it's called, but it's it's based loosely on these reports. And just you bringing up the scratches and welts all over her body and the murdering of John, this movie takes the stance that John was molesting his daughter. And that's why she had the scratches and welts all over her body. And that I can't recall for sure, but I think in the movie, she is the one that murdered him because he was, you know, molesting her. But that was just something I wanted to throw out before we go over the rest of the theories. 
Some believe a local school teacher who is in love with Betsy Bell somehow fabricated the eerie phenomena so the girl would leave her betrothed and marry him instead. And modern-day scientists think John Bell was slowly poisoned with arsenic, perhaps by one of his enslaved workers. While it is impossible to know the true nature of the unexplainable events that terrorized the Bell family in the 1800s, the legend of the Bell Witch persists as America's greatest ghost story. The Terrifying Origins of the Bell Witch Legend According to the official Bell Witch website, the story of the fabled apparition began when farmer John Bell spotted a strange creature in his cornfield in 1817. It looked like a dog with the head of a rabbit, but it disappeared when he shot at it, so he didn't think much of it. I don't know. I mean, if I'm taking a shot at a dog with a rabbit head and it runs off, I'm not going to be like, oh, I guess it was just something normal then. <laughs> but whatever. Maybe it was a jackalope. <laughs> That evening, while John and his family were sitting down to dinner, they heard a strange knocking sound from outside. Several of John's sons ran out the door to see what it was, but they saw nothing. Over the next few weeks, John, his wife Lucy, and his children continued to see apparitions and hear unexplainable noises. One of his sons saw a bird of, quote, extraordinary size and his daughter Betsy spotted a girl with a green dress swinging from the limb of an oak tree. And that's how it was reported. I'm assuming that they mean that she was either hanging on the branch swinging, or they may have had a, a swing on the limb. I couldn't find anything like she was hanging. You know what I mean? Like right, from I the noose or anything. Quite hanged. But... So I would assume it's from a, a rope swing or something. In any case, one of the farm's enslaved workers mentioned that a large black dog had been following him around. As time went on, the hauntings became more frequent and increasingly violent. Soon, the family heard knocking and choking noises throughout the house, invisible dogs fighting, the sound of rats gnawing on the beds, and chains being dragged along the floors. The children had their bedsheets ripped off them and endured scratches and hair pulling. These are all experiences reported by people experiencing demon obsession, infestation, oppression, and of course, possession. This obviously was before The Exorcist came out. And the things that they are reporting while they may have been known about, perhaps like in religious circles in the church and stuff, they weren't necessarily known by all people and especially you know rural farmers probably didn't talk much about possession and the progressions in any case the ghost seemed to favor betsy i guess depending on how you look at it she was pinched slapped and stuck with pins so maybe she was the ghost or the witch's whatever favorite target, the demon's favorite target. The invisible abuse left red handprints and large welts all over her body. The witch often claimed that she wouldn't leave the Bell family alone until John was dead and Betsy broke off her relationship with a young man named Joshua Gardner. John confided in a family friend named James Johnston. Johnston spent a few nights on the Bell Farm and confirmed that some sort of spirit seemed to be terrorizing the family. 
1894, newspaper editor Martin V. Ingram published his authenticated history of the Bell Witch. It's regarded as the first full-length record of the legend and a primary source. Many of the featured characters were known historical figures. Skeptics have regarded Ingram's efforts as a work of historical fiction or fraud. Other researchers consider Ingram's work a budding folklore study and a truthful reflection of belief during the 19th century. While not a fundamental element of the original recorded legend, the Bellwitch Cave in the 20th century became a source of continuing interest, belief, and generation of lore. You want to tell us about the legend? In the book you mentioned earlier, An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch, author Martin V. Ingram surmised that the poltergeist's name was Kate, after the entity claimed at one point to be Old Kate Bat's Witch and continued to respond to the name. The physical activity centered on Bell's youngest daughter, Betsy, and her father. Kate expressed particular displeasure when Betsy became engaged to Joshua Gardner, as we mentioned before. The haunting began sometime in 1817 when John Bell witnessed the apparition of a strange creature resembling a dog. A claim corroborated by a slave on the farm, which we referenced earlier. John Bell began experiencing paralysis in his mouth. Family friend James Johnston told John Bell it was a spirit just like in the Bible. Soon, word of the haunting spread with some traveling great distances to see the witch. The apparition began to speak and was asked, Who are you and what do you want? And the voice answered feebly, I am, I am a, spirit. a spirit. I was, I was once, once very, very happy, happy but have been, been disturbed. disturbed. That's scary. So do you want to talk about Betsy Bell? I love Betsy Bell. <laughs> You're not the only one, it seems. <laughs> the Bell family asked the ghost who she was, and like we said, she said she was the witch of Kate Bats an eccentric neighbor who was known for making up stories for attention. And keep in mind in the time period that we're discussing, a, a witch was kind of a catch-all for anybody who was a little weird, maybe somebody who used home remedies instead of going out to buy, you know, the insane things that they used to sell back then in stores. Like I saw a cough syrup bottle picture that literally had well it had morphine and cocaine and you know that's probably a pretty good cough syrup but <laughs> anyway uh like we said it became a tourist attraction just what you want a bunch of people showing up at your farm wanting to see your ghost i don't know there was no word of anybody being charged to go see the witch or you know experience the witch or whatever but the spirit revealed its origin, which it linked to the disturbance of a Native American burial mound located on the property. So it seems odd that old Kate Bat's witch would be pissed off about the disturbance of an Indian burial ground. But this is the first time I've heard of, at least in a story that we've covered, where, yes, a Native American burial ground is linked to a haunting that became very popular you know throughout history verified uh, obviously in poltergeist you know they they were on top of a native american burial ground but anyway she sent drew bell and bennett porter on an unproductive search for buried treasure with the emergence of full conversations the spirit repeated word for word two sermons 
given 13 miles apart at the same time. The sermon is the priest's kind of speech, right? It's not the actual reading of the gospel or whatever. Right, and it's their, like, teaching about it or their, you know, lesson that you're supposed to learn. Commentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The entity was familiar with biblical text and appeared to enjoy religious arguments. The witch shared gossip about activities in other households and at times appeared to leave for brief moments to visit homes after an inquiry. I love everybody's names back then. Like John Johnston, son of James, and he devised a test for the witch, something no one outside of his family would know asking the entity what his Dutch step-grandmother in North Carolina would say to the slaves. The witch replied with his grandmother's accent, Hut, tut, what has happened now? I don't know if that's a Dutch accent or not, but, you know. In another account, an Englishman stopped to visit and offered to investigate, because that's what Englishmen do. Mm-hmm. On remarking on his family overseas, the witch suddenly began to mimic his English parents. Again, in the early morning, the witch woke him to voices of his parents, worried, as they had heard his voice as well. The Englishman quickly left that morning and later wrote to the Bell family that the entity had visited his family in England. He apologized for his skepticism. At times... The spirit displayed a form of kindness, especially towards Lucy, John Bell's wife, the most perfect woman to walk the earth. Now that is a quote. (laughs) The witch would give Lucy fresh fruit and sing hymns to her and show John Bell Jr. a measure of respect. The witch called John Bell Sr. Old Jack. She claimed she intended to kill him through curses, threats, and afflictions. The Bell patriarch ended up allegedly being poisoned by the witch. Afterward, the entity interrupted the mourners by singing drinking songs. In 1821, as a result of the witch's aggression, Betsy Bell called off her engagement to Joshua Gardner. The entity told the family it was going to leave, but return in seven years in 1828. The witch did return to Lucy and her sons Richard and Joel with similar hauntings as before. They chose not to encourage it, and the witch appeared to leave again. Several accounts say that during his military career, Andrew Jackson was intrigued with the story. According to the Tennessee State Library and Archives, then-General Andrew Jackson heard stories about the Bell Witch and decided to investigate for himself in 1819. Some believe he had property on the Red River and stopped by the Bell Farm when he was in the vicinity, and others say three of John Bell's sons had fought under him in the Battle of New Orleans, so he wanted to visit them and offer his assistance. If that's true, that's pretty cool, in my opinion, that, you know, he's hearing about former soldiers, and and at this time he's a general, but, you know, he's on his way up. And to just be like, oh... You know, some of those guys fought under me. I'm going to go see if I can help them. I I think that's pretty cool. That says a lot about somebody. Yeah. But as soon as Jackson and his entourage entered the Bell property, one of their wagons became stuck. Despite their best efforts, the wheels simply would not turn, and Jackson declared that it was the doing of the witch. According to legend, a disembodied voice then said, All right, right, General, let the wagon wagon move. I will see you again tonight. At the farm that evening, one of Jackson's men proclaimed he was a witch tamer and had a silver bullet that would kill any evil spirit he came across. 
No sooner were the words out of his mouth than he began screaming and jumping around, shouting that he was being pricked with pins and beaten. The disembodied voice reverberated through the air once more, saying another, another fraud, fraud would be revealed the following day. Jackson's men begged to leave, but the general convinced them to stay put for at least one more night. It's unclear what happened that night at John Bell's farm, but villagers saw Andrew Jackson speeding out of town the following morning saying, I would rather fight the British at New Orleans than fight the Bell Witch. In an independent oral tradition recorded in the vicinity of Panola County, Mississippi, the witch was the ghost of an unpleasant overseer John Bell murdered in North Carolina. This account is reminiscent of vampire lore. The supernatural powers attributed to the Tennessee spirit have also been compared to that of jinn in mythology. In a manuscript attributed to Richard Williams Bell, he wrote that the spirit remained a mystery. Whether it was witchery such as afflicted people in past centuries and the darker ages, whether some gifted fiend of hellish nature practicing sorcery for selfish enjoyment, or some modern science akin to that of mesmerism, or a disembodied soul shut out from heaven, or an evil spirit like those Paul drove out of the man into the swine, setting them mad, or a demon let loose from hell, I am unable to decide. Nor has anyone yet divined its nature or cause for appearing, and I trust this description of the monster in all its forms and shapes and of many tongues will lead experts who may come with a wiser generation to a correct conclusion and satisfactory explanation. And that quote is Williams Bell. The Mysterious Death of John Bell and the Disappearance of the Witch From 1817 to 1820, the Bell Witch remained a permanent fixture at the Bell Farm. The spirit would speak with the Bell family and visitors about the past and future. She was especially well-versed in the Bible. The entity who began answering to the name Kate after she claimed to be the Witch of Kate Batts was violent toward John and Betsy Bell but she seemed to like John's wife, Lucy. These are very repetitive, but these are different accounts by different people. So I feel like we need to at least mention it to kind of add to the credibility. And there's no indication necessarily that they heard what went on, you know, at, at different times and just kind of copied it or whatever. As the years passed and the hauntings continued, John Bell began experiencing strange muscle twitches in his face. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had like an, an eyelid that kind of like wants to blink when you're not trying to or anything? Yes. Yes. When I'm under certain stress, I've, I have noticed that that will happen to me now. It's very weird. I, I hate it. I hate it too. I used to make fun of my mother for it a little bit because I can mimic it. I can kind mm. of twitch my eyelid and mimic it. That'll used to happen to her, and she's like, "You just watch. Someday you're going to have this too." And sure enough, folks, she was right. That's a mother's curse. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, it got worse. It soon turned into migraines, tingling sensations, fatigue, and seizures. Then, in December 1820, John suddenly slipped into a coma. The following day, he died quietly at home. The bell witch's voice then echoed through the house. I gave, I old, gave Jack old Jack a big, a big dose of that last, last night, night, which fixed him. It was apparently referring to something that was in a, a vial, a, a small bottle. 
apparently John Jr. threw the vial into the fire where it exploded into a blue flame and shot up the chimney. With John dead, the spirit could focus on Betsy. Oddly, his family found a mysterious vial full of dark liquid in the kitchen cupboard that hadn't been there previously. And we talked about them blowing that up in the fireplace, but before all that, it's alleged that John Bell Jr. gave a drop to their cat, and it immediately fell over dead. Cryptique has a lot of new stuff to look out for in the next month or so, including shows like Demonology with author M.R. Gorga, the true stories behind Halloween and Friday the 13th, and an alien satellite in Earth's polar orbit. We've got stories coming out about ultra-terrestrials and the sea tones. I'm not sure if that's how you say that, but it's, it's a wild story. You guys will love it. We're going to talk about shadow people, and we're going to talk about the guardians of the looking glass with researcher Frank Jacob. So smash that subscribe button so you won't miss a single episode. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. She even reportedly made predictions about the Civil War, which was still over 30 years away. When she vanished for a second time, she supposedly said she'd return in 107 years, but there are no records of a reappearance in 1935. However, some of John Bell's descendants claim they've seen signs of the enduring entity. Mm. All right. So we're going to talk about some early written records. And again, there might be some repetition in here, but we're presenting different points of view from different people. And I think that when you have kind of a flow of likewise interactions or evidence being presented by different people, it adds a little bit of credibility. But Lee Eric Schmidt writes that Enlightenment writers by the late 18th century utilized ventriloquist theory as a naturalistic explanation for religious expression of supernatural voices such as those found in democratized Christianity of the Great Awakenings and shamanic practices of Native Americans. Schmidt argues this secularized explanation of supernatural voices as a form of deception and illusion led to the adoption of ventriloquism by stage magicians of the first decade of the 19th century. These early popular performances from predominantly white male stage magicians concurrently led to the democratization of the secular theory across the United States. And I guess basically that statement is just saying that a lot of people then believed that a lot of these hauntings were tricks by people that were throwing their voice, basically. Right. Is that what you get? Yeah. The cultural change left religious interpretations of such voices to more marginalized groups and secular interpretations of those beliefs as provincial or rustic. This shift also led to the spiritualist movement of the mid-19th century. The publications New England Farmer of Boston and the Green Mountain Freeman of Vermont in January and February of 1856 published an article regarding the Bell Witch legend and the publications ascribed the origin of the text to the Saturday Evening Post. The Farmer was a weekly agricultural journal. The Freeman was affiliated with the Abolitionist Liberty Party. 
The unidentified author described the apparition as the Tennessee ghost or the Bell ghost. There are three human characters in the account, Mr. Bell, his daughter, Betsy Bell, and Joshua Gardner. The author stated that the voice which spoke freely about the house from all directions would not manifest itself until the lights were extinguished at night. The phenomena attracted wide interest. The author claimed to have become well acquainted with Mr. Gardner when the ghost was asked how long it would remain or applied until Joshua Gardner and Betsy Bell get married. The author goes on to state that Betsy Bell had fallen in love with Joshua Gardner and had discovered the skill of ventriloquism. The author states that Miss Bell then used her skill to attempt to convince Joshua Gardner to marry her. When they did not marry, the apparition disappeared. So if you go on a date and the girl that you're with is like throwing her voice and like making it look like the person at the next table is hitting on you or something weird like that. Hey, baby. Salutations. Maybe uh, swipe the other direction next time. <laughs> All right. Clinard and Burgess trial, 1868. In September 1868, an article was published entitled Witchcraft and Murder, Hobgoblins and Old Gray Horses, The Incentive to Crime, which is quite a title. Uh, Tom Clinard and Dick Burgess were arrested for the murder of Mr. James or Charles Smith. And the information I found, I just said James or Charles because there were different accounts it could have been james charles smith it could have been charles james smith it could have been uh, there were a lot of charles james smiths out there let's put it that way mm. the article reported that smith claimed the powers of witchcraft while working near adam station chopping wood on a farm with the defendants the article stated that smith claimed to use these occult powers on clinard and burgess leading to the conflict between them the identity of the victim was reported variously as James or Charles, like I talked about. The jury of State versus Clinard and Burgess returned a not guilty verdict. Ingram published an interview with Lucinda E. Rawls of Clarksville, Tennessee, daughter of Alexander Gooch and Venny Thorne, both reported as close friends of Betsy Bell. If your last name was Gooch, would you change your name? <laughs> Absolutely not. I would keep that name forever. I would just, I would never even use a first name. I would just be Gooch, like Cher or Seal. I would never use another name. So, you think you can come in here like you own the place and make a fool of the Gooch? No, no, no Gooch fooling. I just didn't know who you were. Oh, now you've gone and done it! That's a good idea. Fenny Thorne's kind of a weird name, too. Maybe it's that's short for something. Yeah, that sounds like a Spider-Man character. Rawls testified that the Bell Witch was a frequent topic of conversation during her lifetime and pointed to a murder of a man for witchcraft as evidence for this claim. The Bell Witch was, and is still, a great scapegoat. Every circumstance out of the regular order of things is attributed to the witch. This was written by, again, Lucinda Rawls in An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. So that's really interesting. It kind of, I mean, we talked about The Conjuring 3, where Arnie something murdered someone and then said he was possessed. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of a, a similar type story. Like, yeah, we're just going to blame this on the witch. It was her fault. And they're like, okay, right, you're clear. 
However, the writer interviewed John F. House, who was counsel for the defense on the subject, who says that no such evidence was produced in the trial, but that the lawyers handled the Bellwitch affair for all that it was worth in the defense of their clients, presenting the analogy of similar circumstances with good effect on the jury. So that was written by Martin B. Ingram in An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. And I mean, if you're a defense attorney, you would just try anything, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's their job, you know, love them or hate them. I couldn't be a defense attorney. I couldn't defend someone that I thought was guilty. Right. According to the Associated Press, Lucy Bell Butler claims she and her daughter have seen the black dog from the original tale and a giggling girl like the one Betsy saw swinging from a tree limb 200 years ago sometimes runs through their house. Butler's claims, along with every aspect of the Bell Witch legend, are doubted by many. After all, the story is essentially a folktale passed down through the generations, though there are newspaper articles from the 1850s that mention the witch. So, I don't understand why they continued to call her the witch, but mm-hmm. whatever. Let's talk about some alternate theories about the Bell Witch haunting. There are several possible explanations for the events surrounding the Bell Witch haunting. One of the theories involves Betsy Bell's teacher, Richard Powell, as we kind of mentioned before. Although Powell was 11 years older than Betsy, he was madly in love with her and was disappointed when he discovered she was engaged to Joshua Gardner. He was also rumored to have knowledge of the occult, ventriloquism, and horticulture. In other words, if anyone could pull off such an involved hoax, it would be him. Is that romantic? I mean, I don't think you so. know, like, I mean, the crowd who think that like Twilight and Fifty Shades romantic might, yeah, but probably not. <laughs> baby, baby, listen, I pretended to be a ghost, and uh, I got you to dump your fiance, and uh, I killed your dad. <laughs> you you want to go out? You wanna you wanna head off to the new Ponderosa down on Front Street? <laughs> i don't know i mean come on that's in my opinion if that did happen i can't imagine the mental state of somebody that a would do something like that or b that could pull off something like that i mean that's like criminal mastermind shit right was this hannibal lecter's grandpa like happy lecter James Charles Johnston Lecter. <laughs> so this story is strengthened by the fact that Powell did indeed marry Betsy Bell after she broke off her engagement with Gardner. A more modern explanation of the Bell Witch haunting comes from Dr. Megan Mann, a chemistry professor at Austin PA State University in Clarksville, Tennessee. Did you ever get Mountain Dew when they had the uh, Final Four caps on them or like the NCAA tournament caps? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you would never get like Duke or North Carolina. It would always be like Austin, PA. Like, oh, great. Do I even save this thing? Like, there's no <laughs> chance. <sighs> anyway, man told the Tennessean, John Bell's son talked about all of these strange medical symptoms he was having, and a lot of them sounded very neurological to me as someone who knows a bit about things like biochemistry and toxicology. She continued. If you look at the neurological symptoms, those are oftentimes caused by heavy metal poisoning. 
Mann noted that arsenic was a commonly used poison in the early 19th century and long-term exposure to arsenic would have caused symptoms such as muscle twitches and trouble swallowing that John Bell experienced. Have you ever had trouble swallowing? No. I used to, uh, I forget what the medication was, but it was a sleeping pill and it would you know, like as I was about to fall asleep, I would have trouble swallowing. And that's really uncomfortable. Like, you know that you don't need to do it to survive, but if you need to swallow and you can't, it's very, it's it's a really weird feeling. But anyway, Uh, arsenic also burns blue, which would explain the colorful explosion when John Jr. threw the mysterious vial in the fireplace. Mann believes that someone, perhaps someone from church who didn't like the Bell family, or one of the wealthy farmers enslaved workers, slowly poisoned John Bell over the course of three years, finally finishing off the job in December of 1820. No one will ever know the truth behind the Bell Witch legend, but the accounts and theories associated with the folktale certainly offer great material for late night campfire stories. And we're all about those late night campfire stories. I would like to recommend the Donald Sutherland movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's like the Bell Witch Haunting or something like that. It has a different take on what happened, but it's a good movie. You got any final thoughts on old Kate Batts, the Bell Witch? (laughs) Nothing to wild just i think this is a great legend something that's kind of lived well beyond and well past probably what it ordinarily would have you know i I imagine there are stories like this all over the place all the time that we just don't hear about but this is one that somehow caught on really well and it's a little bit convincing that at least some of the stuff really happened as to what the explanation was you know who can really say but the fact that there's so much consistency in these different accounts that we're talking about and readings from articles and books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pretty compelling. What about you? Well, I think that Andrew Jackson, if that really did happen, and I couldn't find anything where he specifically said, yes, I witnessed this, I experienced this, I was there. But if that did happen, I think it lends a lot of credibility not because i think that generals or presidents or anyone necessarily should get more street cred if you will but i i think if that really did happen then that says a lot about the story i kind of think though that it's more likely not that someone like hoaxed everything but you talk about what is it correlation doesn't equal causation right it could have been a lot of weird different things that were kind of compiled together to make up a legend because how does a big black dog relate to the bell witch you know what i mean it's like it's thrown in and it's interesting but it doesn't do a damn thing to prove that there's a ghost witch spirit demon on your farm i I think that the theory that she was being abused by you know john bell senior and 
she poisoned him to me is the most believable. And I don't think that that's something that would have flown back then because, you know, it was very rare that any kind of abuse from a white male house head was ever reported or taken seriously. And if it was, it was probably just dismissed. You know, that's your father, that's your husband. You do what they fucking tell you. Right. So, I mean, to me, that's that's my take on it. And that doesn't mean that there wasn't a spirit there, but that's my take on it. And and it could very well be now that if this, you know, Betsy Bell did do this, it, it's so hard to say, but maybe God's like, you know what? You're going to have to stay there for 200 years before you get into heaven. You know, you, you were abused, but you also murdered someone. You know, maybe that's her purgatory, and that's why there's still experiences on the farm and at the cave in particular. And some of that could also go to, you know, like you talk about what you expect when you go into a place. So, what do you guys think? Send us case suggestions and comments at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. Stay tuned for the after party to hear about elephants on acid, the new Loch Ness Monster evidence, and more. All right. Welcome to the after party, Crypt Keepers. Ryan's going to tell us about the elephant on acid. And we're not talking about the Dumbo movie. On Friday, August 3rd, 1962, a group of Oklahoma City researchers decided to find out what LSD does to elephants. The unfortunate elephant in question was Tusco. The director of the city zoo fired a cartridge syringe containing 297 milligrams of LSD into the elephant's rump. The dose is about 3,000 times the level of a typical human dose. In fact, it remains the largest dose of LSD ever given to a living creature. With the director were two scientists from the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine, Louis Jolion West and Chester M. Pierce. They wanted to know if the drug would induce a state of temporary madness characterized by aggressive behavior. Tusco reacted to the shot as if a bee had stung him. He trumpeted around his pen for a few minutes and then keeled over on his side. Horrified, the researchers tried to revive him with antipsychotics, but about an hour later, he was dead. The three scientists sheepishly concluded, it appears that the elephant is highly sensitive to the effects of LSD. I just want to say, Louis Jolion West and Chester Pierce, fuck you guys. Why would you do that? That's awful. And why would you start with such a high dose? obviously this elephant they did not give a shit about and if you are a director of a zoo and you don't care about your animals and you're just like well fuck it yeah let's shoot them with lsd and see what happens that's not who you want in charge of your zoo that is bullshit and i understand that this was in 1962 and maybe people didn't realize just how special elephants are in the animal kingdom but you know what if i was those guys i sure as hell wouldn't be around those other elephants after that because 
they're very, very smart. And they might put it together like, hey, this dude killed Tusco. Let's fucking stomp him. Mm -hmm. But anyway, what do you think about it? Despicable? Yeah, I mean, it seems like they at least could have taken more care to start with a smaller dose and, you know, just see rather than just like go balls to the wall and kill it. Right. All right, let's talk about wooden bombs. During World War II, the Germans built a fake airfield complete with wooden planes, wooden vehicles, and wooden hangars to fool the Allies. The Royal Air Force knew about the operation and waited for the Nazis to complete the project. After it was complete, they dropped a single fake wooden bomb on the airfield and that's fucking awesome i love that so much that's so cool so worst hiccups ever uh-huh on june 13th 1922 29 year old charles osborne suffered a fall while working on a nebraska farm then developed the most bizarre case of hiccups in recorded history for the next 68 years straight he hiccuped 20 to 40 times per minute but doctors could never explain why his podcast sucked, by the way. <laughs> One physician thought he'd burst a blood vessel in his brain, damaging the part of the brain stem that suppresses hiccups. You know, Another, the hiccup suppressor part yeah, of your brain. The hiccup, hiccup campus. <laughs> <laughs> but no matter how many treatments, therapies, and home cures Osborne tried, nothing seemed to help. But then on June 5th, 1990, they suddenly ceased all on their own and never returned. However, Osborne was only able to live just a few blissful hiccup-free months before he died in May of 1991. Now that is awful. Yeah. Could you imagine, like, if you're his wife, like, dude, I love you, but you've been hiccuping for six years now and I have not slept a wink. <laughs> I mean, it would be hard to eat with, you know, hiccups. I don't know. I yeah. just thought it was an interesting story, so... Yeah, it's super weird. Yeah, so hiccups for a long time. That sucks. Well, let's talk about the monkey's revenge. Every dog has reportedly been purged from the small Indian village of Lavool after the monkeys went on a revenge rampage that left 250 of them dead. The attacks began after a dog allegedly killed an infant monkey in November and continued for more than a month until the dogs had been eradicated from the town. Some people even tried to help the dogs only for the monkeys to turn on them. And when all the dogs were gone, the monkeys reportedly began attacking school children. Mm. I don't know what to think about that. I mean, it's a rural village in India, so there's not a lot of uh, corroboration on the story it's just something that popped up in one of my news feeds and i thought it was really interesting and why not i mean it would make sense right yeah if they're protecting their own they see oh well this is the threat we have to get rid of it we've certainly done that over the years definitely what's next all right so we are going to talk about some new nasty evidence the debate over potential webcam sightings of the Loch Ness Monster has intensified. Critics of such reports have now started a petition calling for these cases to be stricken from the official record. 
The effort is the work of a group of Nessie fans dubbed the Falkirk Boys, who say that they made the bold appeal following last month's launch of five new live streams surrounding the iconic Scottish site. They argue that webcam sightings are of such poor quality that they have a detrimental impact on the standard and myth of Nessie. Mm-hmm. They note that the organization behind the new live streams, Visit Inverness Loch Ness, have even conceded that their HD cameras will not always give a clear resolution, and that the weather, wildlife, and the odd paddleboarder could be the cause of strange movements on the loch rather than the legendary monster. The petition requests that sightings from the new webcams not be accepted by the official Loch Ness Sightings Register. It takes the critique a step further and calls for all prior reports to be removed from the historical record of Nessie cases. While it remains to be seen whether or not previous reports will ultimately be expunged from the register, cases from the new webcams are unlikely to wind up on the list going forward due to a rather stringent requirement announced in a joint statement by Visit Inverness Loch Ness, an official Loch Ness sightings register. In response to a pair of possible livestream sightings made by online monster hunter, oh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that one, last week. How about, let me try, Eowyn or Fadigan? Sure. Last week, (laughs) they have indicated that a webcam report will now only be considered if one can capture footage of clear facial features of an unknown creature. Assuming that this near-impossible standard also applies to sightings recorded on the Nessie on the Net livestream, it will assuredly upset those who have spent countless hours watching for the creature from the comfort of their home. So while the debate over the quality of these cases will likely continue for quite some time, the question of whether they wind up being accepted as official has been seemingly settled as they apparently will not, unless one can somehow manage to spot Nessie's face on the live stream. So where do you stand on the Loch Ness Monster? Just a brief kind of synopsis on what you think. I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly what it is. I definitely think there's something there. I've seen a lot of videos of like sea creatures and things like that. Mm -hmm. We know that we know very little about the bodies of water on this planet. Yeah. So I would not be surprised at all if it was uh, a plesiosaur or whatever that somehow wound up there. Because they have to breathe air, though. You would think it would be spotted if it came up. And and a lot of people say whales, too, but they have to come up for air, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why we would see it every once in a while. Right. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, I think that it could be some type of eel that hasn't been discovered yet. But there's a person that I saw, I think it was on a Monster Quest or a show like that where they recorded a lot of echolocation going on in Loch Ness. Now there's no animals that we know of that use echolocation that don't breathe air as far as I know. And the only ones that are in water that I know of are like whales and porpoises. So I don't know. It's really interesting. Yeah. I don't believe that Nessie is a plesiosaur because I think that they would have been spotted. And I say they because it's not one. People think about the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. I actually was talking to somebody and they they said, do you believe Bigfoot's real? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, well, 
well, how is he still alive? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, hasn't been hunted down? And they're like, no, I mean, he's been around for like 500 years. And I'm like, well, well, do you mean you think it's like one thing? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, no, it's got to be a breeding population. It's got to be the same thing with Nessie unless these animals live for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, but think about how great it would be to put out like solar powered video cameras in all the places that Bigfoot sightings have taken place. And then you have a website where people can, you know, spend their $9.99 a month or whatever and monitor all those cameras. I mean, that's a that's a good deal, right? You just have to have, you know, 100, 300 cameras that uh, work in, and are decent cameras. And you can, you, I mean, it's, it's basically passive income. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. So it's a great gig if you can get it. Yeah. All right. Well, click that share button on the episode you're listening to and share it with a friend. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. Boom. Boom. <laughs> <laughs>